I want to introduce a gentleman who will be preaching today uh, to you. A good friend of mine, his name is Ryan Silhavy. You've seen him up here before doing all sorts of different stuff. Uh, and Ryan is one of my favorite people. I met Ryan a couple of years ago, and we've met together many times uh, in sort of discipleship relationships. And, then, uh, and I've watched him grow as a man of God and as a, as a, as a boyfriend and as a student and as a, all the great ways that you grow when you meet Christ and your life changes. And it's been wonderful to watch Ryan grow. And, and the running joke around here is that if we need something done, we just ask Ryan. So it's like we're at a mic stand. Somebody call Ryan. He can hold the microphone on the melodica or whatever. And the reason that we have this running joke is because Ryan would do anything for anyone. Ryan is such a servant's heart, and that's one of the things we love about him. We're real thankful that he's a member at EBF, and he's going to be leading a small group in the fall. He's just willing to do anything, uh, including preach this morning. He was contacted a couple of months ago and asked to preach and, uh, and step up his game. Uh, he's a young dude, but uh, at EBF, we do, uh, we do let a lot of young guys preach. We, we view ourselves as a preaching hospital, kind of like a teaching hospital pairs young doctors with more experienced doctors to learn. So, Ryan, come on up here, bro. Bring the word to us. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's great to be back at Evanston Bible Fellowship. Now, I have a very different view this morning than normally when I come to church. Usually, I'm either in the congregation like you or somewhere over there playing in the worship team. Well, um, like Andy said, my name is Ryan Slahavy. I'm going to be a junior at Northwestern University in the fall. I'm studying euphonium performance and music education. Now, for those of you who don't know what a euphonium is, don't worry, I have to answer this question 90% of the time I introduce myself. Think tuba, but smaller. It's like a little baby tuba, and that's, that's in a euphonium, and that's what I play. So as I was preparing for this sermon in the past few weeks, I thought on several occasions, why am I doing this? I have no formal theological training, and I have never before preached in front of a congregation. I realized, as I was thinking about all of this, all of those questions were about me, my age, my training, my lack of experience. I've come to the conclusion that I'm not up here to do anything special. I'm not responsible to change you or tell you how to live your life. That's just not my job this morning. It's not about me. Here's what I'm going to try to do in this sermon. Present and interpret God's word and pray that his spirit would enter this place, renew our hearts and minds with the scripture, and stir something up in us today. When Pastor Jason emailed me to ask me to preach in early May, I was pretty excited. I was too excited, in fact. You see, in my eyes, I was really awesome. I'm one of the youngest guys to ever preach at this church, and that's really cool, right? I made so much of myself when I found out about this that I lost sight of my actual purpose this morning, what I just told you. I started telling all my friends and blabbing on and on about how cool I was. What happened is that I had a prideful reaction to a blessing that God had seen fit to give me. I got more upset when I learned that my prideful reaction would have to be preached on in my sermon about youth humility. Here I am pridefully responding to a sermon telling you not to be prideful. I'll make this clear. I am not good at humility. I've spent the last weeks being convicted of pride over and over. 
I'm preaching to myself this morning louder than I'm preaching to you. I'm preaching to myself as well. However, humility is commanded in the Word of God, so we will discuss it here at EBF. Now, if you're visiting this morning, EBF is in the midst of a series on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. We're taking a break from that series this morning, but I want to make this point. We definitely and desperately need humility to put on the fruit of the Spirit. We cannot be prideful and truly embody the fruit of the Spirit. We need humility to fully grasp what Jason has been preaching on in these last few weeks. So this week isn't a break necessarily, but a meaningful addition to the series. Now, I invite you to join me in opening your Bibles or your smartphones to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, 1 through 13. I'm going to read the passage, then pray, and we'll jump in. Philippians 2, 1 through 13. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Join me in prayer. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Um, I thank you for our gift in Christ Jesus. God, I pray that you would empower me to preach your word, God, that I would fade into the background and that your word would shine bright this morning. I pray that it would not, uh, like you say in your word, it would not return empty, but that, um, God, your word would accomplish something in our hearts, that we would be filled up with the truths of your gospel, God, that you would move through me as I preach in this difficult passage this morning. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There is certainly a lot to discuss in this text. So many rich theological truths that would take years or even lifetimes to understand fully. 
in fact, will never fully understand some of the material in this text. In the short time I have this morning, I'd like to dig into some of the truths of this passage while making it very practical to our lives. The main idea this morning is this. In this passage, we see that Jesus is the most important person ever to live in the history of the world, and our lives must show that he is Lord by responding in humility, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, while resting in the sovereignty of God. Let me rephrase that for those of you who are taking notes or those of you who like catchy titles. Let me put this up for you. Jesus is a big deal, so we need to act like it. Jesus is a big deal, so we need to act like it. Jesus is a big deal, so go and act like it. In this passage, we see examples of how great Jesus is in his humility and in his future glory. We'll also see in this passage how we are to respond to Jesus being a big deal. So let's get started. Now, as many of you know, the book of Philippians is a letter. Paul is writing a letter to the church at Philippi. There are many aspects of this letter, and one of those is Paul talking about his own story, his own life. Paul makes some pretty radical, bold statements about Jesus and about how Paul is choosing to live his life. Paul really believed that Jesus was a big deal, and his life was evidence of his beliefs. He acted like Jesus was a big deal. Look what he says one chapter before our text this morning. I'm starting in chapter 1, verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Those are some pretty radical statements about Jesus, wouldn't you say? Paul really acted like Jesus was a big deal. He believed it, and his life showed it. He goes on to say that he actually desires to depart and be with Christ. What this means is that Paul actually desired to die and go to heaven to worship Jesus in his presence, but chose to stay so that he could continue to help the churches he had planted or was ministering to. Paul's life is an amazing, God-honoring example of living the Christian faith. Paul made Jesus a big deal in his life, and so can we. So in chapter 1, we've seen that Paul thought Jesus was a big deal and acted like this was the case. Getting back into chapter 2, what does he ask that we do? He asks that we act like Jesus is a big deal. You might ask, how do we act like it? We humble ourselves. Read in verses 3 through 5. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Like I demonstrated earlier with my story about 
pridefully responding to learning that I was preaching on humility. Humility is one of the most difficult attributes of the Christian life to achieve. But what is it? What is humility? In order to learn how to be humble, we need to work up a definition of humility. My good friend at dictionary.com says humility is, and I quote, a modest or low view of one's own importance. Paul says in verse 3 that humility is counting others more significant than ourselves. I think that in some ways we need to combine these definitions to really capture the essence of humility. So this morning, I define humility this way. Humility is a true view of ourself in light of who God is and a true view of others. Humility is a true view of ourself in light of who God is and a true view of others. One more time. Humility is a true view of ourself in light of who God is and a true view of others. Friends, this is not our natural disposition. Especially in this culture, we're all taught of the importance of self, that we are so special and important. We have developed a sinful view of ourselves. We, at least myself, tend to have a high view of self and a low view of others. We tend to have a high view of self and a low view of others rather than a true view of self in light of who God is. Having a high view of self is pride and it's sin. Now, here is what humility is not. Humility is not wretched man that I am. Humility is not the belief that I am worthless and I don't matter. Only other people matter. I'm so wicked, etc. That's false humility. While we have oftentimes developed a high view of self, Humility is not the belief that we don't have worth in this life. We need to understand that we are deeply loved, yet sinfully flawed. We are deeply loved, but sinfully flawed. While we are not worthy of God, that doesn't mean that we have no worth. We are deeply loved by God and others, even though we are sinfully flawed. So, Again, humility is a true view of self in light of who God is and a true view of others in light of who we are. What actually happens, though, at least in my life, is that we elevate ourselves above who we truly are. Instead of looking to others' interests above our own, we look first to our interests and then to the interests of others second. Now, what actually happens is that we merge human and blowfish. This is like a spiritual scientific anomaly. We merge human and blowfish together. Now, hear me out. This doesn't affect our physical appearance, but if we had like a, a spiritual lens, almost like 3D glasses for our spiritual life, we'd see that we think our heads are so big. We sinfully fill and puff ourselves up with pride and ego and try to make ourselves someone we're not. We can't even fit our giant heads through the door as we try and walk into church this morning. The Holy Spirit has to come and like pop us like balloons before we can come in to repent. We need to cultivate a true view 
of ourself. And that starts with cultivating a true view of who God is. We need to see the immeasurable greatness of God more clearly, and humility will follow. Here's my point with the whole blowfish thing. When we see God for, truly his, for who he truly is in his immeasurable, awesome greatness and glory, we have no choice but to deflate our blowfishiness, see ourselves for who we truly are, and humbly serve others. When we see God for who he truly is, we have no choice but to deflate our pride, see ourselves for who we truly are, and humbly serve others. When we see God for who he truly is in his greatness, we have no choice but to deflate our pride, see ourselves for who we truly are, and humbly serve others. Now, if you're like me at this point in the sermon, you may be thinking, Why should we do this? Why should we lose our blowfish mentality? Notice how Paul structures this passage. This passage is neither performance-oriented, solely what you should do and how you should do it, nor is it purely theological. It's a combination of the two. Paul combines theology and practicality and answers the question, why should we be humble? The answer is because of the humility of Jesus. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now this passage has been one of the most hotly debated passages in the entire New Testament for hundreds of years. I don't want to get into any form of debate this morning, but I want to illustrate what this text means, what we as Christians should make of this text. We should be humble not only because of our example in Paul, as we saw in chapter 1, but also more importantly, because of our example in Christ Jesus. Because our goal as Christians is to become more like Christ, humility must be one of those attributes we seek to attain. While we are all puffing ourselves up like blowfish, making ourselves seem bigger and more important than we actually are, Jesus came to die and made himself nothing. Now understand this, Jesus had every reason in the world to make himself greater than us while he was on earth because he was infinitely greater than all of us. He was God. He had every reason to flaunt himself and show us how great he was. But instead of inflating himself like a blowfish, Jesus took on the form of a servant, deflating himself in comparison to what he was becoming a man and dying a brutal, bloody, public death for my sin, for your sin, for all sin. Now, most of the debate about this passage stems from this notion, Jesus making himself nothing. Here's what this passage does not mean. It does not mean that Jesus lost anything. He did not go from being God to only being human. 
He didn't lose anything in this transition. Jesus submitted himself perfectly to the plan of God and emptied himself of his divinity, but he didn't lose it. And it's as if someone, picture this, if someone owned a box of something, let's say clothing. If they put that clothing in the box and moved it to the side, they still own the box and its contents. They still own it. They've just set it aside. Similarly, Jesus set aside his divinity to become a man on earth. The theological term for this is the hypostatic union. Jesus became fully God and fully man in one being. At certain times, we see his humanity in the gospel narratives. For example, when he sleeps and eats and is tired like normal human beings like us. And at other times, we see his divinity, for example, in his miracles and in his greatest miracle, resurrecting himself from the grave. Jesus is shown here to embody perfect humility. He made himself nothing in comparison to who he was in heaven. We are to be humble in response to the perfect humility of Jesus. We're to be humble in response to the perfect humility of Christ. Jesus is a big deal, but he became humble to die a public, brutal death for our sin. Now, what is the result of Jesus' humility? We've seen that we should respond to Jesus being a big deal by being humble, but what is the direct biblical response to the humility of Christ? Read in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this passage and the passage preceding it, what we just looked at, we see two extremes. We see the lowliest form of death possible and the highest exaltation of the one who died that death. In this passage, we see the lowliest form of death and the highest form of Jesus' new life in all glory. Paul reminds us of two things in this section, Jesus' return and his future glory. Because of the humility of Christ, because he took on the penalty of all of our sin, Jesus will be praised for all eternity at the end of this age. When the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders questioned Jesus about the kingdom of God during his life, they thought that Israel would be delivered from the oppression of Rome and that Jesus would establish a literal earthly kingdom like the kingdom of Rome. They did not realize this fact. The cross had to come before the crown. The cross had to come before the crown and it was planned that way. Before Jesus returns, he needed to justify sinners and redeem us to God so that through belief in his sacrifice and his humility, we would have eternal life in God. The kingdom of God will be fully instituted at the second coming of Christ. Jesus is coming back, and we should be preparing ourselves for this. Notice verses 10 and 11. Paul doesn't only say that Christians 
will bow at the name of Jesus, or that people that achieved a certain level of the Christian life will bow at his name. What does he say? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, at the end of all times, the Bible says that everyone in this room and everyone in all creation, past, present, and future, will be worshiping Jesus. The Word of God says that every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. This will occur when we have a true view of ourselves in light of who God is and a true view of others we see that we will all be glorifying Jesus at the end of the age. We can practice for this in the present day by responding in humility. We can practice for eternity by having our lives show that we believe Jesus is a big deal. The question of this passage, however, is will you be forced to bow to Jesus or will you do it by will? Will you be forced to bow Or will you bow and worship on your own to the glory of God? You can answer that question right now because the question is simple. Are you a Christian? For those of you here today who would not identify as a Christian, I invite you to examine the scripture this morning and think on the sacrifice of Jesus. God's standard is so high for your life, that someone needed to die in order to make up for your shortcomings. God sent Jesus Christ who emptied himself of his divine attributes and became a man. He died for your sin 2,000 years ago on a cross, and this is still vitally important today. All that I ask today is that you consider what Paul claims Jesus did in this passage, because he's either true Or Jesus is a gargantuan lie and a gargantuan farce, and millions of people would have died for no reason. Now, I'd love to talk to you about this after the service, as would many people here at Evanston Bible Fellowship. Today can be your day to say, Father, I believe. That's all that's required. There's a hymn we sing here from time to time, and one of the lines goes something like this. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Friends, all God needs in order to give you eternal life is for you to feel your need of a Savior and to recognize that Savior is Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I'd ask that you think about that this morning. So, We've seen that Jesus is a big deal thus far this morning. We've seen that we are to respond in humility, that we respond to who God truly is by deflating our pride and humbly serving others. But how do we do this? How do we apply this scripture to our lives? Some answers to this question are found in the last verses of our passage this morning. Verse 12 Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul calls us first to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I know that most of you in this room are Christians, but if you're like me, you know that there can be a lot of standstills during the Christian life. Times when we're not all that motivated, we can be lazy and quite frankly tend to turn away from God. God calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We have to work in this Christian life we are living. A lot of times, at least for me, especially during the summer, it can be really easy to let our Bible collect dust on our shelves while we are outside having fun and ignoring God. Prayer can be entirely forgotten, and the result is a gray season of spiritual dullness. We're called, however, to work. We must do this with a certain degree of fear and trembling, as the verse suggests. In the Old Testament, we see lots of examples of God's people fearing the Lord's greatness and power. Think that as Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, there was a fearful reaction amongst Israel, amongst God's people. We see lots of examples of God's people fearing the Lord's greatness and power. And as we work out our salvation, becoming more humble by seeing ourselves in truth in light of who God is, making a big deal out of Jesus, we need to cultivate a healthy degree of fear of the Lord. Not being afraid of God. That's not what this means. We're not called to be afraid of God, but in awe of his awesome power and majesty. One way that we can humbly work out our salvation is through spiritual disciplines. Reading scripture every day, praying, journaling, fasting, work out your salvation. It takes work, but it's worth it. Spiritual disciplines are one way that we create humility in our lives because they fill our heads with a true view of who God is in his greatness, a true view of ourselves in light of who God is, and how we are to serve others in humility. Another way we can humbly work out our salvation is by surrounding us with other Christians. The Christian life is far too difficult to live by ourselves. We need to work together, pushing each other on to repentance and humility. What I'd like to see is that in all of us, regardless of our age or life stage, is that we're constantly surrounding ourselves by people who are more humble than we are. That we're all surrounding ourselves with people who embody humility better than we do. People who inspire us to be humble and move us towards repentance and move us back to the Lord. I invite you, if you're visiting uh, or if you've been attending for a while, to check out one of our ethos communities in the bulletin. I know that there are a number of groups meeting throughout the summer, and these are great groups where you can live in community with other Christians and push each other on to repentance and humility. Joining an ethos community is another way you can work out your salvation. So we've seen that we are called to work. But Paul also calls us to rest in the sovereignty of God. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his 
good pleasure. Notice the contrast of these two verses. One says work. The next says it's not you that does the work. It's God. We can rest in this truth, friends. We can rest in the sovereignty of God that what we do in this life will never come close to his standard for our lives. We are called to work out our salvation, not to work for our salvation. We're called to work out our salvation, not work for our salvation. We don't need to work for our salvation. It's God's gift for us. We also don't need to develop a performance mentality where we need to do something in order for God to be pleased with us or pleased with our lives. We can rest that God is working in us and we don't need to work for our salvation or for his pleasure. God is working in us for his pleasure. We don't work for God's pleasure. We can cultivate humility in our lives by working out our salvation through spiritual disciplines and biblical community and by resting in the sovereignty of God working in our lives. Finally, we can cultivate humility in our lives by living like Jesus is a big deal. The Christian life is not reserved to Sunday morning worship gatherings like this. We as Christians need to take our faith with us wherever we go outside and inside of this building. My question is this. In the non-church aspects of your life, like your job, school, and hobbies, do you live like Jesus is a big deal? Do you live like Jesus is your Lord and Savior? Can your classmates, coworkers, employees see that you serve a higher purpose and that your life has been changed radically by the gospel? Or do you continue to puff yourself up like a blowfish and develop a high view of yourself? We need to truly see ourselves for who we are in light of who God is and humbly serve others. So, wrapping things up this morning, let's take a look at where we've been. Jesus is a big deal, so act like it. I've tried to make that the main idea through this passage this morning. We read that Paul acted like he believed Jesus was a big deal, a response to his faith in Christ. We discussed that we are to respond to Paul's example by humbling ourselves. We defined humility as a true view of ourself in light of who God is um, and a true view of others. We saw that once we see God in his perfect glory, we have no choice but to deflate our big blowfish heads of pride, see ourselves for who we truly are, and humbly serve others. We then examined the beautiful hymn of Jesus in which we are told to be humble because of the perfect humility of Christ. We examined the end result of Jesus' humility, his return and future glory that all knees will bow to him by will or not in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Finally, we applied this to our lives by discussing working out our salvation with fear 
and trembling while resting in the sovereignty of God and living our lives like we believe Jesus is a big deal. Let's go from this place thinking of Jesus first. When we think of Jesus' humility, we have no choice but to respond acting like that is the case by living our faith. Jesus is a big deal, and we can work towards the humility of Christ and make our lives show just how big of a deal he is. Now, in closing, I want to leave you with a verse from Isaiah that I believe, that I believe captures the essence of everything we've talked about today and really brings it to a new level Let me put it up on the screen for you. This is Isaiah 66, 2. You heard it this morning as the call to worship. All these things my hand has made. This is God speaking about creation. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Friends, God desires humility desperately in our lives. He desires that we be humble and not prideful, that we have a true view of self in light of who he is and a true view of others. Ultimately, he desires that we have the highest view of himself and Jesus Christ. He also desires that we tremble at his word, that the Bible would constantly be stirring things up in us starting in our head and moving to our heart, eventually changing the actions that come out of our hands. Let's go from here with that verse in our minds. But this is the one to whom I, the Lord, will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you've given us your son, God, that you've restored a relationship between us, broken people, and you, a perfect God. Lord, I'm thankful that you sent Jesus to embody humility. God, he had every reason to make himself bigger than he was on earth, but he didn't. In accordance with your will, God, he humbled himself, set aside his divine attributes and came and lived a life on this earth and died a death on this earth. But God, it doesn't end there. I pray that we would realize that he rose from the grave so that we can defeat death and that we can become new. God, I pray for all of us in this room, for those of us that are not Christians, I pray that you would be stirring up something in them, that your spirit would be at work in their lives. And for those of us that are Christians, Father, I pray that you would be stirring up humility in us, God. That you would cause us to see who you are in all of your greatness and that we would see ourselves for who we truly are and humbly serve others. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.